Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Every four years, for two weeks, the world is united as it cheers on the greatest athletes to go faster, higher, and stronger at the Summer Olympics. In 1996, millions cheered when Muhammad Ali took the stage at the opening ceremony in Atlanta to light the Olympic cauldron. His body had been slowed by Parkinson's, but with shaking hands, he managed to ignite both the flame and the spirit of the 100th Olympic Games. The Olympic spirit burned bright that night and continued until eight days later when tragedy struck. On this episode, we look back at the deadly bombing that rocked the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympics and the man wrongfully placed at the center of it all, Richard Jewell. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the history of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On July 26, 1996, the security guard responsible for watching over a sound and light tower at the center of Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta arrived a half hour early for his overnight shift. It was the eighth day of the Summer Games, and the park, with its pavilions, stages and exhibits, was a hub of activity. It was the crown jewel for the Atlanta Organizing Committee, a place where people could come together and feel the Olympic spirit for free. Like every law enforcement or security job he ever had, this guard took his position at the Olympics very seriously. He was alert to any signs of trouble. When he clocked in that night, he had no idea just how much trouble lurked around the corner. He had no idea that his life would never be the same. His name was Richard Jewell. He was 33 years old and lived with his mom, Bobby, in a small apartment in Atlanta. He had recently returned home to his mother after quitting his job as a security guard at Piedmont College in a small town a couple hours north of the city. The reason he left his previous job was that he took his position as a campus cop way too seriously. He was so eager that he even started patrolling areas off campus and pulling over people to issue warnings and citations. His boss was always telling him to relax, and after the college received one too many complaints about the security guard, he was put on probation. Jewel wasn't happy about it, so he decided to quit and move on. It was actually the second job that he had quit recently. Before working as a campus cop, he was a deputy sheriff in nearby Habersham County for five and a half years. Richard Jewell was a guileless but, but very eager young man who wanted desperately to be in law enforcement. That's journalist Kevin Salwin, who recently co-wrote a book about Jewell called The Suspect. He says Jewell was a pretty good cop who loved what he did but he just couldn't stop getting into trouble. 
oftentimes it was over his own driving. He was just a he was just a dreadful driver. Got into accidents all the time. He drove a vehicle that that had been banged up so often that um, it was referred to by his friends as the death mobile. And um, it was the trunk was bungeed down, and but Richard could not kind of get out of his own way in many ways. In one particularly spectacular crash, Jewel wrecked the sheriff's own car while pulling a prank on another officer. He hit a hydro pole and knocked out power to the neighboring area. When he was demoted because of the stunt, Jewel decided it was time to move on. He dreamed of getting another job in law enforcement, but for now, he was happy to work as a security guard at the Summer Olympics, which were coming soon to his hometown. The International Olympic Committee has awarded the 1996 Olympic Games to the city of Atlanta. Atlanta is home to almost 5.9 million people. And it's the ninth most populated city in the U.S. And in 1990, the city was proud to be called upon to host the 96 Summer Games, after beating out an impressive list of other cities, including Athens, Toronto, and Melbourne. Kent Alexander, who co-wrote The Suspect with Kevin Salwin, was the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia and is a lifelong resident of Atlanta. He said winning the games meant everything to the city. In 1990, when we won the Olympics, there was not any real history of Atlanta winning much of anything. We'd never won an NFL title, NBA, uh, World Series, nothing. And so most of us just assumed this would be another disappointment. In fact, by that point, we'd been branded Loserville, USA by a number of publications. So it was just huge. When we got the news that Atlanta won the Olympics, uh, the city just exploded with excitement. Over the next six years, preparations for the Games included an unprecedented security plan. A New York Times article in 1996 called it the largest peacetime security operation for a public event in American history. There were 30,000 security guards, including 14,000 soldiers patrolling the events at a cost of over $300 million. The underlying fear was that the games would be an easy target for either foreign or domestic terrorists. The planning covered the possibility of bombs, kidnappings, and even a poison gas attack, like the one on the Tokyo subway system that occurred the year before, which had killed 12 people and injured thousands. Also in the back of everyone's mind, were two recent terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. The World Trade Center truck bomb in 1993 and the Oklahoma City bombing carried out by homegrown terrorist Timothy McVeigh. And to add to that, just two days before the games were set to open, TWA Flight 800 had mysteriously exploded off the coast of Long Island, killing all 230 people on board. Tensions were high, but officials felt prepared for whatever might come their way. Eight days into the games, things were going well. All that planning seemed to be paying off. About 12,000 people had gathered at the main stage in Centennial Park for a free concert by Mac Jack and the Heart Attack, 
The atmosphere was electric. People partied and danced as the band played on. Just before 1 a.m., Richard Jewell spotted a green backpack under a bench. A few minutes earlier, a group of intoxicated young men had been standing around the bench drinking beer. Jewell assumed one of them must have left the bag behind. He called over a nearby police officer, Tom Davis, and told him what was going on. Together, they began searching for the young men. When they found them, the men said, not our bag. Jewell was immediately worried, but according to Alexander and Salwin's book, The Suspect, Officer Davis wasn't that concerned. Over 100 suspicious bags had been reported in the first eight days of the games, and they all turned out to be just lost or forgotten by their owners. But the officer followed protocol and radioed the command center about the situation. While they waited, Jewell and the police officer cleared a 15-foot perimeter around the backpack. Within a few minutes, an FBI bomb tech was on the scene. Down on his hands and knees, he crawled under the bench with a flashlight in hand to look at the backpack. When he carefully unzipped it, what he saw stopped him dead in his tracks. Wiring, pipes, end caps, and a timing device. The tech carefully crawled away and the bomb management center was called. One problem, they were 20 minutes away. It was now 1.08 a.m. As concert goers danced, about a dozen officers formed a human shield and pushed people back. They were trying to expand the perimeter around the bench and the backpack. Richard Jewell joined them after running into the tower to warn everyone about the threat. Officers were having a hard time clearing the area. According to Alexander and Salwin's book, a lot of people had been drinking and they were too busy watching the concert to heed the warning by police. Then at 1.20 a.m., as law enforcement contemplated a full evacuation, the homemade pipe bomb spiked with nails and screws exploded. The explosion was deafening. The ground and nearby buildings shook. The flash was fiery orange. Smoke billowed into the sky and the smell of gunpowder was everywhere. Nails and screws rained down on the crowd. The metal bits sliced through clothing and flesh of scores of spectators. When the dust settled from the bomb, bodies were scattered everywhere. Screaming and moaning filled the air. 111 people had been injured, including two dozen police officers. And 44-year-old Alice Hawthorne was dead. Her body riddled with shrapnel. Hawthorne had been at the park with her 14-year-old daughter, who was among those injured in the blast. A 40-year-old Turkish cameraman also died that night. He suffered a heart attack while running to cover the explosion. As the sun rose in Atlanta, Olympic officials announced to the world the games would go on. 
just as they did in 1972 when Palestinian terrorists killed 11 Israelis at the Munich Games. U.S. President Clinton offered words of encouragement to a nation shaken by what had happened. We will take every necessary step to protect the athletes and those who are attending the games. But we must not let these attacks stop us from going forward. We cannot let terror win. That is not the American way. The Olympics will continue. The games will go on. The Olympic spirit will prevail. We must be firm in this. We cannot be intimidated by acts of terror. Olympic flags flew at half-staff at each game site as jittery athletes and subdued fans observed a moment of silence. Centennial Park was closed as police investigated the crime scene, but all other events went ahead as scheduled. Surprisingly, attendance was only slightly affected. 90% of ticket holders showed up to take in sports like track and field, diving, beach volleyball, and baseball. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, it was all hands on deck for the FBI and other law enforcement agencies as they gathered evidence and investigated numerous leads. They called in the agency's Behavioral Science Unit, you know, like the guys on Mindhunter, and had them start working up a profile for the possible bomber. Here's former U.S. Attorney Kent Alexander. The pressure on law enforcement was huge. There were 2 million visitors in Atlanta, 15,000 journalists in Atlanta, 10,000 athletes. It was the biggest event in the world. So uh, you can't get more pressure than that because it's not that anyone had to say, oh, this is important, you should look at it. It's the fact that everyone knew there was a bomber on the loose in that kind of crowd in Atlanta during the Olympics in 1996. The bomber could strike again at any point. So it was more pressure than I've ever seen in any criminal investigation. And I was prosecuted for 11 years. During the early days of the investigation, the FBI made a troubling discovery. Right around the time that Jewell discovered the backpack and alerted the police officer, a 911 call was placed from a payphone outside a Days Inn two blocks away from the park. A male caller told a 911 operator, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes, then hung up. The FBI was frustrated to learn that the warning never made its way to anyone at the park. You see, to send a police officer to investigate, the operator needed an address for the park, which she didn't have. She called around, but it took 13 minutes to finally get the address. Then, as officers tried to sort out who had jurisdiction over the park, local or state police, the bomb exploded. Richard Jewell was interviewed four times by agents about what he could remember before the explosion. They may have been surprised by the vivid, detailed descriptions he gave even drawing for agents an extensive map of the explosion site. 
But they didn't know Jewel and how seriously he took his job. For Jewel, his entire life had led to this moment. The next day, Jewel was at home when he got word that CNN wanted to interview him about his heroic actions on the night of the bombing. He was reluctant. He knew appearing on TV would make him extremely nervous. But Jewel's boss talked him into it. So around 8 o'clock that night, he mustered up the courage and he went to the CNN center across from where the bomb had gone off. He downplayed his role as a hero in the three-minute interview that was broadcast live to the world. Adding, he didn't really think of himself when the bomb went off because he was too distracted by the bodies of law enforcement officers he saw flying through the air. According to the book The Suspect, Jewel wasn't aware that his interview would play on repeat through the night. The 24-hour news cycle was still fairly new. But that's exactly what happened. And by the next morning, every media outlet wanted a piece of Richard Jewell. The next 48 hours were a whirlwind of appearances and interviews. He did two more live interviews on CNN and one on NBC's Today Show with Katie Couric, where she asked Jewell if he felt like a hero. He spoke to reporters from several newspapers and even got a call from a literary agent asking if he was interested in writing a book. But behind the scenes, the FBI was starting to have doubts about Richard Jewell as the brave and quiet man who helped avert a greater tragedy. The FBI's concerns all started when they received a call from the president of Piedmont College, Ray Clear. He told agents that while working at the school, the security guard always wanted to be a hero. The FBI spoke to other people at the college who said that Jewel was highly aggressive and badge heavy, meaning he was obsessed with being a cop. When agents dug into his record, they discovered more trouble. Jewel had been charged with impersonating a police officer six years earlier in 1990. When he was first hired as a deputy sheriff, he wasn't qualified to make arrests, but he did so anyway, and he was charged. After pleading guilty to a lesser charge, he was allowed to keep his job. Really, it was just another incident of Jewel being overzealous rather than criminal. But on paper, it didn't look good to the FBI. Members of the Behavioral Science Unit were given videotape of Jewel's CNN interviews and were asked to analyze them. Normally, the BSU, when asked to develop a profile, lays out the characteristics of the possible suspect. But by that Monday, two days after the bomb went off, a report came back, and according to Kent Alexander, it directly pointed a finger at Jewel as the Centennial Park bomber. It practically indicted him. Uh, in this instance, they basically put out a four-page, single-space report that was both instructions on how to interview Richard Jewell and all but full conclusions that he was the bomber. And that's how it was read at the FBI in Atlanta at the time. So yes, it, it was unusual. The idea that a law enforcement officer might invent a situation to look like a hero wasn't something entirely new. It had happened once before. 
At the end of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, a local police officer discovered a ticking improvised explosive device, or an IED, in the wheel well of a bus carrying Turkish athletes to the airport. The officer was declared a hero, but then later he confessed to planting the device. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, the media presence for the Olympics was huge. Every outlet was scrambling for new information in the bombing story. 1996 is such an interesting year in media. CNN is already up and running, but 1996 is the year that MSNBC starts up, Fox News Channel starts up, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and a bunch of other publications go online for the first time. So it is the year in which the pace of news just accelerates incredibly. There was one media outlet that was especially desperate to own the story. The hometown paper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They had 325 people dedicated to covering the Olympics. A small group of reporters from the paper was assigned to cover the security beat, including longtime cop reporter Kathy Scruggs. She died in 2001, but people who knew her describe an old-school reporter with flair. She had extraordinary drive and the ability to work sources like no one else, which sometimes meant drinking with them at a bar. According to the book The Suspect, Scruggs wasn't into big think pieces. Her style was best described as be fast, be first. On Monday, two days after the bomb, Scruggs connected with a source within the Atlanta Police Department who asked her if she was aware that the FBI was looking at Richard Jewell as a suspect. The source had nothing else, so Scruggs started calling around. She got in touch with another, more reliable law enforcement source she had known for years. They met at a bar at a back table to talk off the record. The source told Scruggs that Jewell fit the profile of the lone bomber, the hero bomber, a frustrated white male former police officer or military officer, a wannabe cop who wants to be a hero. The catch was the source told her she couldn't run the story yet. It would ruin the investigation. She tentatively agreed, but warned her source that if she got independent cooperation, her paper would run with it. The next day, three days after the bomb went off, and as the U.S. women's softball team won the inaugural gold medal, Scruggs got the break she was looking for, cooperation for her story. Another cop at the Atlanta Police Department told her that the FBI was looking at the security guard. He said everyone was talking about it. Well, that was enough for Scruggs. Along with her reporting partner, Ron Martz, Scruggs typed up the story that would run in a special edition of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution later that day. The headline read, FBI suspects Hero Guard may have planted bomb. The story that Scruggs and Martz wrote stated that Jewell was the focus of the federal investigation into the bombing and that he fit the profile of the lone bomber. Former U.S. Attorney Kent Alexander says the impact was massive. And I can tell you that when the story broke, and not just the AJC, but when other media picked it up, CNN, Tom Brokaw, NBC, New York Post, others, there was fist pounding around the table among supervisors of the FBI in Atlanta because it completely changed the course of the investigation. 
Every major paper in the United States, except the New York Times, picked up the story and ran with it. The idea that Richard Jewell was not a hero, but a possible bomber spread around the world. You could easily make an argument that this is the first big social media story, even in a pre-social media era. You know, it, we, there were news organizations all over the world who were doing what these essentially the equivalent of retweets and shares. And, um, you know, often without any new information, just essentially turning the knob a little bit. And that was very dangerous. In Atlanta, as soon as the story broke, hordes of reporters and cameramen rushed to the apartment complex where Jewel lived with his mother, Bobby. They didn't know he was the FBI's prime suspect until Jewel received a phone call from his boss, alerting him to what was going on. A couple hours later, there was a knock on the door. Two FBI agents had arrived to take Jewel in for questioning. Jewel asked the agents if they were there to arrest him. They said no. He asked if he was a suspect. They said he was a key witness, and they just wanted to talk to him about what happened at the park. This is when things get very weird. The agents told Jewel they wanted him to come to the station so they could tape the interview for a training video that would be used for other first responders. Any apprehension that Jewel had disappeared. He was more than happy to assist with something that would benefit law enforcement. But it was a trick. There was no training video. Back at the station, the two agents started off by questioning Jewel about his job history, family background, basic stuff. They didn't read him his Miranda rights because they didn't want to tip him off that he was a suspect. You probably know what Miranda rights are from watching TV. You have the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney, etc., etc. If these rights are not administered, there is the chance that anything a suspect says could be thrown out by a judge. In Washington, while the interview was taking place, the head of the FBI, Louis Free, got word about what was happening, and he decided to pull the plug. He called down to Atlanta and issued a direct order. Interrupt the interview and tell the agents to read Jewel his rights. As soon as they did, the security guard clued in to what was going on. Everything stopped. Jewel called an old friend who was an Atlanta real estate lawyer, Watson Bryant Jr. He asked the agents if they were planning to arrest Jewel. And when they said no, Bryant told them that it was the end of the interview. His soon-to-be client would be going home. You might be surprised to learn that tactics like the fake training video are actually pretty normal for the FBI. Here's former U.S. attorney Kent Alexander. I'm not saying it's the right decision by any stretch, but just it's important for people to understand. It's just ruses are used all the time. The real issue with this particular interview, more than the ruse, was uh, how they issued the Miranda warnings. That's the part of the ruse that I think, in fact, I know gave all sorts of people heartburn, both inside and outside the FBI. Over the days that followed Jewel's interview, the media had a field day with the security guard's reputation. They were ruthless. They depicted him as a hopeless dummy, a fat, failed sheriff's deputy with a Forrest Gump personality. 
NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw shockingly went out on a limb and said of Jewel, they probably have enough to arrest him right now, probably enough to prosecute him. Even Jay Leno joked about Jewel in his opening monologue. He said he seems to fit the typical misfit profile cop wannabe low self-esteem and added that he had a scary resemblance to Sean Eckerd, the guy who whacked figure skater Nancy Kerrigan in the knee two years earlier. Atlanta assistant DA Nancy Grace, who was not yet a TV star, went on Good Morning America and all but said Jewel was guilty. And a newspaper editorial compared him to the Atlanta serial child killer Wayne Williams. Despite being tried and convicted in the media, the FBI couldn't make an arrest. They had no forensic evidence tying Jewel to the bomb. And it wasn't for a lack of trying. 30 agents with bomb dogs searched Jewel's apartment for 10 hours. They took away boxes and boxes of items belonging to both Jewel and his elderly mother. The FBI also obtained a warrant forcing Jewel to submit DNA evidence. From it, they found absolutely nothing linking Jewel to the bombing. Not a single piece of forensic evidence. Meanwhile, the Olympic Games came to a close with many exciting moments to look back on. You might remember a few of those. Like when Canada's Donovan Bailey won the gold in the men's 100-meter track event and set a new world record with a time of 9.84 seconds. Donovan then went on to lead Team Canada to a first-place finish in the men's 4x100 relay. Or how about when U.S. gymnast Carrie Strug helped her team win gold when she completed a vault by landing perfectly on an injured ankle? She even managed to salute the judges before collapsing to the ground. At the closing ceremonies, IOC President Juan Antonio Samaranch called the Atlanta Games the most exceptional, instead of his traditional best ever. And in his speech, he denounced the Centennial Olympic Park bombing, stating that terrorism cannot stop the Olympic spirit. Samaranch then asked for a moment of silence to remember the victims of the bombing. As for Jewel, well, he was on the second week of his ordeal, and the FBI was starting to have doubts about whether he was the person they should be focused on. Some media outlets also started asking questions. Bill Rankin, a reporter from the AJC, the same newspaper that started the media frenzy, was the first to wonder about the timing of the 911 call. Remember that call was placed just before 1 a.m., right around the time that Jewel found the backpack and reported it to a police officer. How could Jewel have been at the park and two blocks away at the phone booth at the same time? Jewel's lawyer, Watson Bryant, brought in help, including civil litigator Lynn Wood, who was known as a pit bull. As public perception turned in Jewel's favor, Wood made the decision to go on the offensive. Four weeks after he was identified as a suspect, Jewel was living in limbo, a prisoner in his own apartment. Dozens of reporters surrounded the building 24 hours a day, with one media outlet going as far as renting the apartment across the hall. And yet, no charges had been laid. 
So Jewel's lawyer set up a news conference for Bobby to plead her son's case. Through tears, she begged U.S. President Clinton to help her by ending the nightmare they were going through. Before completely breaking down, she said, If the FBI doesn't intend to charge my son, please tell us. Please tell the world. Mr. President, please clear my son's name. Next came a 60 Minutes interview, which was the leading news authority at the time. In an episode that aired nearly two months after the bombing, Jewel came off in a favorable light, like a man that had been wronged by an overzealous media. His lawyer, Lynn Wood, told Mike Wallace that they would probably be suing the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as well as NBC for the remarks made by Tom Brokaw. Wood said everyone got what they wanted, the police and the media. The problem was they threw an innocent man over the side in the process. While Jewel's lawyer was using the media to turn public opinion around, another lawyer working for the security guard was meeting with officials to hammer out a resolution. Jewel would be re-interviewed by the FBI with the promise that the government would publicly declare Jewel's legal status within three weeks. Here's U.S. Attorney Kent Alexander. And so the agreement was that we would decide, actually I would decide, if he's a along with the FBI, whether he was a target of the investigation or not. So on October 26th, I handed a letter to an attorney named Jack Martin. And the letter said, uh, you know, at this time, you are not a target of the investigation. We'd appreciate your cooperation. His uh, attorneys at the time were a little upset about that because it wasn't a clearance letter. It didn't say you were no longer a suspect. But the fact is, you can't say that until you solve the crime. Alexander says the FBI couldn't outright announce that Jewel was cleared, but they hoped the media would absolve Jewel once they got the letter. And that's exactly what happened. In the media and in the court of public opinion, it was declared that Jewel was not responsible for the tragic events in Atlanta. After the announcement, Jewel held an emotional news conference. This is the first time I have ever asked you to turn your cameras on me. For 88 days, I lived a nightmare. For 88 days, my mother lived a nightmare too. And it's rushed for the headline that the hero was the bomber. The media cared nothing for my feelings as a human being. In the days that followed, Jewel's lawyers filed several lawsuits for defamation. NBC settled for $595,000. CNN paid out $200,000 to Jewel and $50,000 to his mom. And Piedmont College, where Jewel previously worked as a campus cop, settled for $325,000. However, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the paper that started it all, dug in its heels. And after a very lengthy legal battle, the case against the AGC was dismissed in 2012. The court ruled that because the articles written by Scruggs and Martz in their entirety were substantially true at the time they were published, even though the investigators' suspicions were ultimately unfounded, they cannot form the basis of a defamation action. The AJC was not made to account for damage done to Jewel's reputation. You may be wondering at this point if the actual bomber was ever caught. 
Yes, he was finally arrested in 2003, but not before he conducted a reign of terror in Atlanta and Birmingham, Alabama. After the Atlanta Olympics bombing, Eric Rudolph, an anti-government extremist, also detonated bombs at two abortion clinics and a lesbian nightclub. One person was killed and 12 others were injured in those incidents. Following his fourth bombing at the abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, a vigilant bystander saw a man walking away from the chaos and followed him back to his truck, taking down his North Carolina license plate. Police were able to trace the vehicle back to Rudolph. Before they could make an arrest, Rudolph went into hiding in the dense woods of the Nantahala National Forest in western North Carolina. Five months after his disappearance, the FBI announced that Rudolph was also wanted in connection with the Centennial Park bombing, as well as the other two attacks in Atlanta. Investigators were able to connect Rudolph to the bomb at the Olympics after a man came forward to say he had sold Rudolph gunpowder at a gun show. It turned out to be the same gunpowder used in the pipe bomb at Centennial Park. For five years, the FBI scoured the forest with bloodhounds, electronic motion detectors, and heat-sensing helicopters. They set up listening posts with cameras and hired local scouts to tromp through the woods with gridded maps. They added Rudolph to their most wanted list and put a million-dollar price tag on his head. And that's when the bounty hunters came crashing into town, determined to make a fortune off of finding Rudolph. He was finally captured, though, by a 21-year-old rookie cop who found him prowling behind a grocery store in the middle of the night. Rudolph pleaded guilty and avoided trial and was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences plus 120 years. He has no chance for parole. At the time he pleaded guilty, Rudolph blamed his behavior on the legalization of abortion and on what he called aberrant sexual behavior. In a rambling 11-page statement, he declared, abortion is murder, and when the regime in Washington legalized, sanctioned, and legitimized this practice, they forfeited their legitimacy and moral authority to govern. Rudolph explained that by bombing the Olympics, he hoped to shame the United States for its actions. He stated his intent was to knock out Atlanta's power grid and shut down the games. He never intended to hurt innocent civilians. After the Atlanta bombing, many in the media adopted an expression to describe a rush to judgment. They call it the Jewel Syndrome. And even though it seems like it's been universally recognized that the case of Richard Jewell was the epitome of what can go wrong when snap judgments are made, it doesn't mean it has stopped happening. Kevin Sack, the reporter who covered the Atlanta bombing story for the New York Times, has said the media has learned very little since 1996. In fact, he believes the internet and social media has made it even worse. A perfect example is what happened following the Boston Marathon bombing. After the 2013 incident, the New York Post ran a front-page photo of two teenage runners under the headline, Bag Men, implying that they had something to do with the backpack bombs planted at the race. They came to the public's attention 
after their images were scooped up and poured over by hundreds of online amateur sleuths on Reddit, 4chan, and other internet forums. It turned out the teens had nothing to do with the attacks. Reddit users also incorrectly named another young man as a possible suspect, a 22-year-old student who'd been missing for about a month before the bombing. Sunil Tripathi's family was targeted with hateful messages on social media. Reddit eventually apologized to the family for their ordeal. Tripathi is still missing today. Kent Alexander says it wasn't just the media that made mistakes during the Atlanta investigation. Law enforcement did too. And he hopes that they've learned a couple of valuable lessons from 1996. One is don't leak. It's not something that was countenanced by supervisors of the FBI, but it happened. Uh, two is don't put too much credence into behavioral science. It can be very helpful in guiding an investigation and even solving crimes, but it's not evidence. It took about a year, but Richard Jewell eventually did get another job as a sheriff's deputy in a small town southwest of Atlanta. Then in 2001, he got married to a woman named Dana. And a few years later, they settled on a 26-acre farm in middle Georgia, where Jewell had gotten another job as a deputy. Every year on the anniversary of the bombing, Jewell would return to Centennial Park and place a card and a rose at the spot where Alice Hawthorne was killed. He always wished that he could have done something to save her that night. Sadly, in August 2007, Jewel died of a heart attack. He was 44 years old. A large contingent of sheriff's deputies and police officers from several Georgia communities attended his funeral service. The turnout would probably have meant a lot to Jewel, because despite everything that had happened to him, he died continuing to love law enforcement. And his life continues to draw interest today. In fact, Clint Eastwood directed and produced a movie this year based on the 1997 article, American Nightmare, The Ballad of Richard Jewell, by Marie Brenner, published in Vanity Fair. The film depicts the Centennial Olympic Park bombing during the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta and its aftermath. It stars Paul Walter Hauser as Jewell, alongside Sam Rockwell, Kathy Bates, John Hamm, and Olivia Wilde as AJC reporter Kathy Scruggs. Thanks for joining me on this look back at the story of Richard Jewell and the night that changed his life. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard on this episode and links to our guests Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin. Their book, The Suspect, An Olympic Bombing, The FBI, The Media, and Richard Jewell, The Man Caught in the Middle, was a huge help in researching this episode. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you can never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, that's where you can go back and listen to some of our older episodes. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. 
and you can always email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.